The following is sponsored by the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, February 24th through the 26th in East Lansing and April 28th through the 30th in Bryn Mawr. Find information and registration online at alliancenet.org and hear more at the conclusion of this podcast. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman. I'm Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. I'm also an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I'm here with my friend and co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And as you might have guessed, an ordained minister in the second best Presbyterian (laughs) Church in the United States. I'll take second best at this point. As a Presbyterian Church in America. Mm-hmm. Hey, good to be with you, Todd. Good to be with you, Carl. Good to see you as always. Um, I understand you're continuing to um, uh, impress uh, audiences far and and wide. I have a hard time keeping up with your travel schedule. Where you've been most recently? Well, I was in D.C. That's not very far away. That's my. No, that's not too bad. Impressive, but uh, but I am taking my wife on holiday to Rome. We love Rome. Nice spring break. And, uh, nice. I tell my students, the girls are getting engaged in my class. I said, if the, if your fiance is not willing to take you to Rome, <laughs> dump him. Dump him. <laughs> you can do better for yourself because Rome <laughs> is, I think, the greatest and the most romantic city uh, in the world. Uh, okay. Well, uh, well, it surprises it. It kind of surprises me to hear you say that, Carl, because you know you live not very far at all from Pittsburgh, <laughs> and I'm wondering why would you go to Rome when you could just go down, you know, 40 minutes to to, to Pittsburgh? It's a close run thing, I have to say. <laughs> you know, uh, Romanti Brothers or some yeah, really nice yeah. Italian restaurant on the there you uh, Piazza Navona. It's it's uh, <laughs> anyway. We're looking forward to that. So uh, well, hey, good. Uh, well, we have a couple of very interesting guests today speaking on a very important uh, topic. Uh, some of you may have heard of the New Apostolic Reformation, a movement that is presenting, I think one would have to say, a significant challenge, partly through its tremendous success to the contemporary Protestant and perhaps specifically uh, evangelical church. And so we're delighted to have on today uh, two experts. So expert is a much overused word, I know, but we're going to hear about the, the experts are going to say on this topic. Uh, they are mm-hmm. Holly Pivik. Have I pronounced your name correctly, Holly? Yes, you did. Excellent. Holly Pivik, who's described in the book as a blogger, author, speaker, pastor's wife, homeschooling mom. Um, so... Obviously, it has a tremendous amount of spare time after she's done those particular things. <laughs> right. uh, and uh, also, uh, Douglas Guybert, uh, husband, father to two grown children, professor, author, and speaker, teaches at Biola University uh, in California. And Douglas and Holly have recently re- released a book, Count of It Kingdom, 
the dangers of new revelation, new prophets, and new age practices in the church, which takes as its launching pad really critique of the new apostolic reformation. But as the title, the full title would suggest, raises questions and issues that haven't just emerged with the new apostolic reformation, but are kind of hardy perennials of Christian church life throughout the years, throughout the centuries. So, Doug and Holly, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much. I've yeah, really been looking you. forward to this. I, um, I, I'm so... When I when I first saw the the title of the book, I was I was glad because I uh, anybody who has spent much time in in broader evangelicalism, as Carl suggested just moments ago, is gonna have a little bit of experience or knowledge of this movement just because of its its breadth. And I wonder, um, it, it, lest any of our listeners think that this must be some small fringe group, this is a this this movement, the New Apostolic Reformation, represents a huge, huge numbers um, within the church worldwide, um, both in the United States and in the global South. Um, I wonder if you would just, first of all, just give us a, a, a brief sketch of, of, of what this is, what is the New Apostolic Reformation, and maybe some names associated, some of the kind of major players. Yeah, so the New Apostolic Reformation, many people have not ever heard that term new apostolic reformation um but they could still be part of this movement um and and likely and when and when people hear the movement describe the teachings and practices they'll often recognize that actually they have had a closer encounter with this movement than than they've realized um but nars a, a popular fast-growing movement among christians it's infiltrating many churches uh as you said throughout the united states around the world uh we literally receive letters from people daily from around the world talking about the ways that that uh, this movement has impacted them has harmed their churches has has harmed them um but leaders in this movement emphasize miraculous signs and wonders they teach that god is giving new revelation through an end time movement of new apostles and prophets who will equip the church with supernatural powers to transform society take dominion and prepare the way for God's kingdom to be set up on earth and Christ's return. So if you submit to these apostles and prophets, then you're privy to God's special favor. You become a, a player in his end-time plans and purposes for the world. If you refuse to submit to their leadership, though, you'll sit on the sidelines as mere spectators. And if you criticize the leaders of this movement, then you are under the influence of a powerful demonic spirit uh, known in this movement as the spirit of religion. So there's been a lot of destruction uh, by these move by the movement's controversial teachings about the end time, about miracles, healing, spiritual warfare, prayer, new revelation, and and the authority of today's apostles and prophets. Um, but the most well known church today uh, that's part of this movement is Bethel Church in Redding, California, home to Bethel Music. And so it's through the music that a lot of right. the movement's been able to grow. Um, mm -hmm. But other churches and organizations people might have heard of um, the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri, led by Mike Bickle, Jesus Culture, led by Banning Leapshire in Sacramento, California. Mm -hmm. And then other NAR leaders who are well known are Lou Engel, Heidi Baker, Cindy Jacobs, Rick Joyner, Mark Sharona, Cheon, and Randy Clark, uh, just to name a few. Yeah. And there, and a lot of those guys are rooted kind of their, their, you know, parents in the ministry, or, you know, you go back to guys like Kenneth Hagan, Kenneth Copeland, and, and these kinds of guys who were really kind of the generators of the, of the word faith movement. This is kind of the, uh, kind of the next 
step in the evolution of that stuff, it seems yeah, to me. Really, NAR teachings are a rehash of teachings from the latter rain movement of the right. late 1940s. Mm -hmm. And um, they they promoted the idea that uh, God was restoring apostles and prophets mm -hmm. to the church. And the core belief of NAR is that apostles and prophets are supposed to govern the church. They hold these governing right. offices and all others, including pastors, are supposed to submit to their leadership because they need to bring critical new revelation right. that all Christians require in order to develop supernatural powers to prophesy heal the sick, raise the dead, even allegedly work greater miracles than Jesus worked, right. they would say. And so um, so these are latter rain teachings rehashed. Um, but the Assemblies of God back during the latter rain movement actually condemned these teachings. And so the teachings of the latter rain movement kind of fizzled out. And then they started resurfacing in the 1980s and 1990s when uh, governing authoritative apostles and prophets started resurfacing in independent charismatic churches. Mm -hmm. And and um, by the year 2001, the Apostle C. Peter Wagner said that so many churches now recognized apostles and prophets that it was the beginning of what he called the second apostolic age. Yeah. And C. Peter Wagner had tons of influence. I mean, Carl, you're probably familiar with that. He was a professor at Fuller Seminary for years, and he got caught up in in all of this but and, and was able to kind of uh, leverage his, you know, uh, influence as, as a scholar um, in a in a major um seminary to kind of propagate these ideas and give it a level of kind of intellectual yeah you know, credibility yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah and and his teachings are a lot of modern leaders in this nard leaders are trying to distance themselves from now from c to peter wagner but the thing is the core teachings the teachings that he promoted they are still promoting mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're talking here about the, the teachings of the New Apostolic Reformation and your extra revelations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Are there positive doctrines that they affirm that stand in direct contradiction of what we would consider to be traditional small C Catholic Christianity, that which we find in the creeds of the ancient church, for example, or or in the consensus of the confessions coming out of the Protestant Reformation? Do they hold positive doctrines that actually are heretical. Effectively overturn, are yeah. heretical, overturn established uh, biblical Christian positions. Yeah, well, they've been very careful not to do that. And uh, they would uh, express support for the major creeds of the Christian church. Mm -hmm. uh, the way that there is the tension it materializes in relation to the historic creeds and the traditions of the church though, is through their practices and their emphases. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, for example, I, I think that uh, heirs to the Reformation might start with, uh, you know, the the five solas, or at least two of them, uh, sola scriptura mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and grace alone as well, yeah. uh, because of the way they, they understand divine revelation and the way they understand uh, the gospel and, and what uh, the gospel of the kingdom looks like in the world today so uh you look for it in more subtle ways you find it i should say in more subtle ways when you uh, do a close comparison with uh, the traditions and the things that they will publish or will say when directly asked to give their bona fides as orthodox but then when uh when you look at their actual practices you see what's emphasized uh, it seems to be that there's tension and there's a disconnect in some ways. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, because you're absolutely right. I've heard several of the the NAR notable leaders um, say, hey, we, you know, we accept the uh, the Apostles Creed. You know, mm -hmm. we we believe in the in the Trinity. And yet when you 
hear them say things about the the Trinity, it starts getting into some very strange, peculiar uh, waters. And so that so that oftentimes some of the things they say about the persons of the Trinity um, sound a whole lot more like things like modalism rather than historic Christian Trinitarianism. Yeah. Yeah. Just to illustrate, uh, one of the great controversies surrounds uh, a rather notorious statement made by Bill Johnson, one of his books about Jesus, who had emptied himself of his divine powers. And uh, many people immediately jumped to the conclusion that he, this was heretical, that he had mm-hmm. denied the, the the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, he corrected himself, mm-hmm. uh, or he, at least he corrected uh, this perception he, he, he attempted to. By saying that he was being he was misunderstood, you know, I don't know how much yeah. credit he took for being misunderstood here. There was some room for confusion about this because of the way he expressed himself. But he does now explicitly affirm uh, the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, the hypostatic union, if you will, the the two natures of Christ. But there's a reason why he was uh, misunderstood, if that's the way you want to put it, on this point, because he had so emphasized the uh, decision on the part of Jesus not to use his divine powers at all in his earthly ministry during uh, when he performed miracles. Mm-hmm. And so he will say that none of Jesus' miracles were ever performed using his direct his divine right. power in any direct way. Always it was as a mere man in humble uh, d- dependence on the Holy Spirit. This is critical to his practical theology for today because he believes that you and I are capable of doing exactly the same thing that Jesus himself did. Right. And so he says this not only about okay, you know, some of the miracles of Jesus, but he universalizes. It is true of all of his miracles. Now, uh, this is because of the way he reads John 14, 12, mm-hmm. uh, where the, the Greek word ergon is used for, it's translated in English in most translations as works. But Jesus said to those in the upper room with him on that occasion that they would uh, do the same works that he did and even greater works than these. And uh, uh, Johnson just dogmatically declares that this has to be miracles and it can't be anything other than miracles. And uh, then we should emulate the example of Jesus following his footsteps and do exactly what he did and be activated in the miraculous ourselves for today. So this is, I think, the primary motivation for the way he glossed the, uh, uh, you know, what Paul says in Philippians 2, 7, you know, that Jesus emptied himself. This Mm -hmm. is uh, so that he can account for this. uh, capacity that we have that Jesus had. Now we think that uh, there are lots of indicators uh, in the text that uh, the 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 language is not uh, uniquely referencing miracles. There, that uh, what you need to do is is look for the facts in the Book of Acts, where the men who were in the room with him actually performed the deeds that Jesus predicted, mm-hmm. and see how they how they stack up uh, in comparison with Bill Johnson's exposition. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it's pretty clear. Just on my own study, uh, I would say that many of the miracles, if not all of them, uh, of Jesus uh, did uh, involve the direct exercise of his own divine power. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. have evidence of this as uh, an explanation for the response of the people. But we have the uh, healing of the paralytic, for example, right. where Jesus does it in demonstration of his authority to forgive That's sins, right. which is a, a uniquely divine prerogative. I'm thinking here of the the healing of the woman with the flow of blood. Uh, Jesus yes. doesn't even know 
What happens right. is an unclean person touches him, yes. and we're told he felt the power going out of him. In other mm -hmm. words, the cleanliness in Jesus mm -hmm. flowed to the woman. Well, that's yes. neither that's not intentional on Jesus's part. Right. We, we might say that that's some aspect of his being there. It, yeah, it owes to it, his divinity. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it's united by faith in the woman. But mm -hmm. it's not only because of her faith that she's healed. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I gather that this movement is having a particular impact in what you call the two-thirds world, mm -hmm. South America, Asia, Africa. Do you think there are sociological reasons why uh, this uh, movement is having such an impact there? And I, I know we were talking before, and I think Todd may have uh, some insights into this as well. But why is it that this movement is coming to grip uh, parts of the world that that perhaps you know have, have not traditionally been as strong in in orthodox christianity well of course it makes an extraordinary emphasis on the spirit and spirits and uh plural yeah. is is relevant here uh first the holy spirit and and uh the definite article the is often dropped in reference to the holy right. spirit oftentimes they speak of holy spirit as if that's a, the name of a person right. a member of the trinity mm -hmm. and uh, they use that as kind of a familiar way of addressing mm -hmm. the spirit of god in prayer uh the the spirit is um central to all of this it is a manifestation of the spirit that is a revelation of the kingdom uh, or the the gospel of the kingdom uh and so in a social religious context where the spiritual is taken very seriously and it is it animates their their belief system on a very deep level i think they find resonances there uh, with what they already believe in some parts yeah. of the world, not not as much in in this part of the world, mm -hmm. but of course, um, and I actually think there's evidence of superstitious practices and 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 things that we would normally associate, but for the Christian lingo that gets attached to them right. and the sub the the appearance of support from some pretty uh, dubious appeals to scripture, it it really does sound a lot like. Uh, superstition and animism or spiritualism right. and uh this this is reflected as well in in the uh, use they make of departed spirits in various ways through their various practices yeah and even here in the united states um our leaders will often target like native alaska i'm in alaska native alaska or native american uh groups and um and claim to find great receptivity there and so i think you you can see that yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, it, you, you mentioned um, superstition because th there's so much of that. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to say a term that I know Doug and Holly are going to recognize from from the Bethel movement. For those of you who don't know, we, we were talking about Bill Johnson earlier. He's the pastor of Bethel Church Reading, which which Doug um, referenced. Bethel Church Reading is kind of the Mecca in the U.S. for this n newest manifestation of this movement. Big church. Um you know, Doug, you mentioned the music, Bethel music, and it's all big, big, big. And, you know, both of you are going to recognize things like um, the angel's feathers that fall from the ceiling and the gold dust and the yes. glory cloud. Oh, I remember that. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, this is Bethel Church you. Reading stuff. Oh. The, 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 the grave sucking, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, where where they where they will go to graveyards and and lay on the graves of of like Amy Simple McPherson and 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 receive her mantle up from the grave. Well, there's no real Christian Smith I mean, Wigglesworth. Smith Wigglesworth. I mean, there's no Christian category for that. That's sorcery. That's not Christianity. 
we have an entire chapter in our book, Counterfeit Kingdom, where we talk about um, new age and occultic practices that yeah. are entering the church through this movement. So and I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you all specifically about that. Give, give just a couple examples because our folks need to be discerning on this as this stuff kind of creeps in. Where, where are you seeing some of that, some of that creeping into otherwise churches that are not associated with this, but they're susceptible? What, what are some examples that you've seen of this? Well, one popular practice in in NAR in the New Apostolic Reformation is the activation of miraculous gifts in individuals. So they would say that every Christian mm-hmm. can have miraculous gifts and should have miraculous gifts activated in themselves. So they should be able to prophesy, heal the sick, all of these yeah. these things. And um, and actually, it's it's sin not to be seeking to be activated. You right. know, they would say. And, um, and so you have like Bethel school, supernatural ministry, and then you have other schools of supernatural ministry around the nation and throughout the world that are patterning themselves after that school. They're using their curriculum to activate people. Mm-hmm. And for example, a gift of prophesying. And so what they'll do if, if they're trying to activate someone in the gift of prophecy, they do these activation exercises where they might have two people who've never prophesied before blindfold them, stand them mm-hmm. back to back. So they don't know who's behind them. And then ask them to say the first thing that pops into their head is a prophetic word for the person behind them. Um, and, and so they learn, they practice prophesying and, and they're told not to worry if they miss it. It's fine that, that you're just practicing, you're growing in your gift. And, and so this, this idea of activating the prophetic, uh, this is a widespread practice in churches across the United States and throughout the world. Um, and so that's one example. Um, we also talk about in that chapter about things like destiny cards, which are essentially Christianized versions of tarot cards that are being used to give prophetic revelation. So they'll go to people in this movement will go like to a psychic fair and set up kind of kind of masquerade as psychics, use yeah. these destiny cards to give prophetic readings or spiritual readings um, to people. So that that's another example. And uh, we even talk in our book about examples of of what seems like necromancy where you yes. have prophets in this movement claiming to receive revelation from deceased saints uh, for for living people. And that happened on the stage at Bethel Church, where where there was a well-known prophet named Sean Boltz who, who claimed to receive some communication from a deceased prophet named Bob Jones yeah. or Bill Johnson, who was sitting there in the audience, mm-hmm. revelation about his father and his, his family members in heaven. And again, this is not, this is not this little bitty tiny fringe group. This is, this is among the fastest, if not the fastest growing segment of Christianity in the United States. Well, it it makes sense in some ways, because I think syncretism has always proved useful on mission fields. I mean, I, when I teach the early church, I always think you make the point to the students, you know, Catholicism with its cult of the saints has an advantage over Protestantism. And, you know, you, you move into a village, hey, they've got a local god that, that keeps the water pure. Yeah, We can give you a saint that will do yes. exactly the same thing. Yes. Whereas Protestant missionaries, they don't have that option. Oh, God will keep it safe, but you know, God seems to be a long way yeah. away. And, you know, if he's caring for everybody, how can he care for this village in particular? So it doesn't surprise me that uh, you know, what's being described, this sort of new age syncretism, essentially, is proving mm-hmm. uh, very successful. Uh, yeah. And also, I think it, it sounds to me as if it, particularly in the, I, I think of liberation theology, oddly, mm. in the 60s, you know, what did liberation theology do that sort of made it successful? Uh, 
it offered poor, impotent people power. Yes. Of, of a political revolutionary kind. Mm. But this kind of uh, theology seems to do much the same. Uh, perhaps you can be powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And we yeah. and we like to really point out that we we're not critiquing classical Pentecostal historic charismatic teachings mm-hmm. about the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. This the our teachings go far beyond yes. those teachings, which is why many Pentecostals, many charismatics, many other continuationists are very concerned about the new apostolic reformation. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, Sam Storms, who's a <clears throat> historic theologian and also happens to be charismatic, um, has been highly critical of of so much of the stuff in the NAR. I'd love to see him be even more critical. But that said, there are some well-known continuationists who have who have shown a great deal of concern about the the new apostolic reformation. True enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um so one thing I I I I would love for you to comment on is just in terms of your major concerns about uh, as as people will hear this and people will read your book because they have a friend or a family member who's into this stuff. Um, what are your chief concerns in terms of the impact on the church and the impact on families of the NAR? Well, what we see in letters we receive from talking with people all the time is the fallouts from this movement are spiritual abuse. Mm. Um, you know, because these apostles and prophets are claiming to have this extraordinary authority right. and everyone's supposed to submit to them. So spiritual don't, t- don't touch the Lord's anointed. You, you right, hear that from them. Right. Yeah. That's a common catchphrase that's used to warn people about yes. the dangers of questioning the apostles and prophets. Yeah. Um, and so, or people are feel like they have to seek out the apostles and prophets for revelation mm-hmm. on any major life decisions, who to get married to, where to live, where to work these kinds of things. So we have spiritual abuse. There's split families. I mean, you have children going off to Bethel school, supernatural ministry, and then cutting off all communication with their parents because, because in this movement, if, if you don't go along with the teachings of the apostles and prophets, you're like a second class Christian. Um, and, and, and if you challenge them, you're, you're even an enemy. And so Mm. it really causes division in families, uh, churches. We hear all the time of churches being split because, the teachings of this movement start to move in. Um, and then disillusionment with the Christian faith when people are promised healing or, or other prophecies that don't come to pass and they get dis- disillusioned with the Christian faith and, and in some cases end up leaving leaving the faith altogether. And then, of course, yeah. there's the damage to the witness of the church, to the watching world, because, you know, when you have the this church, when all these prophecies were made that President Trump would be reelected to a second term in office and then he wasn't or or the dec- the prayer declarations were made at Bethel Church to raise this little two-year-old girl from the yes. dead for six days. Yeah. was picked up by national media, and it they didn't work. You know, the damage uh, to the reputation of the church makes it harder to share the gospel going forward. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's so much to be said on this. And even uh, the conditions for experiencing intimacy with God and fellowship with one another as a church— mm. Uh, you know, a lot of that is learned by observation and uh, imitation mm. and how we, you know, think about it, how people learn to pray typically is by observing other people doing that yeah. and then emulating them. And uh, they have a whole approach to prayer that uh, really cannot be sustained by any appeal to scripture. Right. Uh, and they, I think they... Uh, they actually cast aspersions on 
petitionary prayer mm-hmm. as uh, an expression of a lack of faith on the part of people when they should be declaring uh, right. truths that they believe God has promised. And then just, and, and here's where one of the superstitious elements come in is with this declaration prayer, because uh, as you know, we start with this case uh, in the first chapter of our mm-hmm. book of uh, Olive Heiligenthal, who was this infant who died. Uh, her parents uh, were members of the church, mother, part of the worship team there at Bethel uh, in Reading. And uh, and the mother decided that uh, what they needed to do was exercise faith and declare the resurrection of Olive with the expectation that by declaring it to be so, it would happen. And uh, she enlisted the uh, support of the leaders of the church, and it went viral. It went global yeah. through social media, and people were chiming in. And this raised the hopes of the family, the the couple who lost their, their little one. And uh, this was declaration prayer. Now, they have a direct teaching that uh, explicitly contrasts petitionary prayer, as we understand it, with declaration prayer. And of course, they put a greater priority premium on declaration prayer right. because it is so effectual. Right. Uh, and it's a, it's a demonstration of faith. Well, when she wasn't raised, uh, several days later, they had to come out and acknowledge that this wasn't going to happen after all. They were planning a memorial service and they issued a press release in which they recast what they had been doing in terms of petitionary prayer. So there was a lack of transparency here. Now, in my soul, I was feeling like this was a very serious breach of of pastoral responsibility uh, to these people. And think of of the lessons that are taught to people that that you can have this uh, presumed knowledge of what God intends to do, and then uh, and then it doesn't happen, and you can just sort of brush your hands and walk away and go on and do it again later. Yeah. And so this this way of modeling how how Christianity works in our lives is is very it's very subtle and it's it's dangerous to the to the sp- spiritual right. health of people. Now, fortunately, as I see it, they they I think more than pay lip service to the authority of Scripture. Mm-hmm. I believe that they they genuinely attribute mm-hmm. uh, this to the revelation right. of God, the inspiration of the Spirit, but. But the way they handle it or or mishandle it or sometimes run end runs around it to to teach other things that are not there is a is a really uh, sets a dangerous precedent for yeah. people that are watching and saying, oh, so this is how it's done. And and people are not learning how to direct their lives and and organize their thoughts and their emotions and bring them under submission to the to the yeah. spirit of God through a deep knowledge of the word of God through responsible interpretation. Right. And instead, what they're getting are, are models of how you can just sort of glibly appeal to a passage by lifting it out of context and making mm-hmm. free, you know, a fr- free associating right. whatever you want with it in a in in some spiritualized sense. Yeah, yeah, and it, the, the whole thing is very tragic. Um, it's it's hurting people. It's distorting the truth. It's hurting the church's witness. It's misguiding people and leading them into all kinds of deep error. And that's why we're. We're happy to commend this book, Counterfeit Kingdom. We are thankful for the thorough work that Doug uh, Guybet and, uh, and Holly Pivik have done in this excellent book, Counterfeit Kingdom. We, we commend it to you. And if you will go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can um, register to uh, receive a free copy of this book. 
um, and hope that uh, that you will do that as you're there at our website, mortificationofspin.org. You can look into uh, making a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so they can continue to provide um, good uh, good content like this for you. So uh, again, thank you to our guests, Doug and Holly. Thank you so much for the book, for thank your you. work, and for coming on well, with us today. Well, thank you both for your excellent questions and your interest and support. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we thank you to our listeners, and we look forward to Seeing you next time on Mortification of Spin. Young people, God's doing a new thing, isn't he? In our community. Won't you stand with me right now and say, You know he's doing it. God is doing a new thing. You know he's doing it. God is doing a new thing. You know he's doing it. Who's doing it? God is doing a new Uh, thing. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Here I stand, I can do no other. Martin Luther's stirring words sparked the flames of Reformation more than 500 years ago and remain the heartbeat of the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Join Kevin DeYoung, Richard Phillips, Jeffrey Thomas, and others for our 50th conference, February 24th through the 26th in East Lansing and April 28th through the 30th in Bryn Mawr. As the PCRT is excited to present, Here We Stand, the Five Solas of the Reformation. Conference founder, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, considered the Reformation solas to be the tonic for the ailing church of our time. Discover once again how God uses these great doctrines to give life to His church. As you enjoy rich fellowship and stirring worship among friends, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology in Michigan, February 24th through the 26th, and April 28th through the 30th in Pennsylvania. Find information and registration online at AllianceNet.org.